in that. Well, thank you for being here this morning. We've been studying through uh, the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings, and uh, we are really entering into the very last days of Jesus' life in our study. And a very, very important part, maybe the most important part in some ways, of the Gospel of Mark. I've asked our associate pastor, Brother David, uh, to preach Mark chapter 13 for the church this morning. You might be wondering why. It's just no particular reason other than I wanted to give him an opportunity to preach Mark 13. And I really believe in sharing the pulpit. Um, I typically preach two to three times a week. And uh, so it's good to hear a different voice. And uh, the Lord has gifted Brother David with a call to preach, ability to communicate God's word. I believe our church can grow and be more healthy as a result of his preaching and teaching ministry. If you don't know Brother David, Miss Hannah, they moved here four months ago from Springfield, Missouri. Um, and uh, God has already opened the door for them to purchase a home. They are planting roots here. They're planning to stay here. They're planning to stay here. And, uh, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm very thankful uh, that, that God has gifted us with them. And so I want you to listen close to God's word. It's an intriguing passage of scripture. It's going to make for a great study and a great challenge this morning. Would you welcome Brother David to our pulpit today? I'm going to, for some of you, I'm about to burst your bubble, and for others, I'm going to talk you off the cliff, okay? So our series in Mark has been called Finding and Following Jesus, right? We're in Mark 13, and uh, some of you, if you've read Mark 13, or if you've looked at it recently, you know this has to do with the future and last days and Jesus coming back and, and stuff like that. So some of you are really excited because you have a, a basement with a big timeline that you've painted on your walls of the last days and you have all this stuff you're going to email me after the sermon. And you're excited for all the wrong reasons because you're thinking, well, we're not going to talk about Jesus today, we're going to talk about end times. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> Some of you are disappointed because you're thinking, I brought a friend to church they're not a Christian. I wanted them to hear the gospel. I thought we're going to talk about Jesus, but I'm disappointed because we're talking about end times. Well, don't be disappointed. For all, of, for all of you that love to speculate about end time events and last days, Mark 13 is about finding and following Jesus, and it's about the last days. And for all of you who are, are not interested in that, it's okay because we're going to talk about Jesus. Hope we're all on board. So, Mark chapter 13, um, instead of reading the text in chunks, we're just going to read it all at once, uh, not just to get it over with or not to move past the text, but one, one of the reasons that people have so much difficulty with these kinds of passages in the Bible is because they look at them at the micro level and not the whole text. So, I think it'll help us a little bit today to get something out of God's Word if we read it all at once. So I'm going to read it once, and then I promise you, I won't go back and read chunks of the text over and over again. So Mark chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's look to God's word this morning. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nations shall rise against a nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. When they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. And, the ch- and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. But when he shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, that would be the temple, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field and not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days." And then if any man shall say say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken." And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uppermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors." Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. 
And what I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. So, Father, help us as we look to your word today. What we don't know, teach us. What we don't have yet, give us. And what we are not yet, make us, as we sit under the ministry of your word to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I hope I'm not the only one that's noticed that in the last 50 to 60 years, there has been a growing interest in the end of the world. Now, it goes back much longer than that, but we see it especially today in books and entertainment. Um, there's, you know, movies about uh, nuclear holocausts. I remember watching The Day After when I was a bit too young, probably, probably to watch it. It gave me nightmares. Movies about aliens. Um, and then there's also, if, if you think about entertainment and you look at the most, uh, the, the highest grossing movies of the last 10, 12, 15 years, they're all epic stories, right? So the, the hero isn't just dealing with a small problem or something with his family, but the hero is literally saving the world and the villain has something that's literally going to destroy the world because that's what it takes to get people to show up and, and watch a movie. That's the stakes that it has to be at because people are interested in the end of the world. Then you have zombie movies. That's a whole genre in itself. Natural disasters or the fear of natural disasters both, both in the movies and, and then even in the news, people talk about the, the worries around uh, the changing planet. And we have this, this question, um, not only the question of why am I here and why do I exist, but this question just as important in the human heart that all of these things in our culture are just bringing to the surface. And the question is this, how does this all end? What does the future look like? What's going to happen at the end of the world? God created us, of course, with a sense of curiosity, and nothing gets our curiosity going as much as the question of the future. But we're not the first ones to ask these kinds of questions. The disciples were as well. It doesn't start off that way. They're excitedly showing Jesus around the temple right? Hey, look how big these stones are. And they, and they were big. They were really big. When Herod uh, rebuilt the temple, it was quite, quite the experiment. So they're, they're showing Jesus this stone and that stone and, and this area of the temple and that area of the temple. And they're very excited. And they, as if Jesus couldn't see like, hey, Jesus, did you see this? Well, of course he saw this. You, you get how passionate they are. Remember Jesus, where we've zoomed into the last week of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. Jesus has entered the temple as the coming king. The disciples are thinking about how they're going to rule and reign with Jesus in the here and now. So maybe they're, they're spotting out their headquarters, right? That's probably what they were thinking, and they're pretty excited, but Jesus gives them a downer. You know, this is all going to be destroyed, guys. Really, Jesus? <laughs> Why would you ruin the excitement? I mean, I, Jesus saying this is kind of like, it gives me the image of you, you get a brand new car, and you're showing your friend, and, then, and you spend all this money on it, and he says something like, you know, you're going you're gonna to wreck this in a fiery crash tomorrow. 
Like, what kind of friend would say that? What is your problem? Just appreciate my, my car. But that's what Jesus is telling the disciples. He's like, you know, not only is this going to be destroyed, not one stone is going to be left on another. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be completely demolished. Well, the, the conversation evidently ends. How do you have a conversation after that? But at some point later, a, a handful of the disciples, four of them to be precise, get the courage to ask Jesus more about the future. Because they didn't know this was going to happen, right? They looked at the temple and how grand it was and how, how, how permanent it seemed, and they didn't get the idea that it was going to be completely destroyed, even though we know now, historically, that that's precisely what happened. So they, they tell Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, tell us what comes next. Uh, tell us when this is going to happen and give us a sign so, when we, so we can know when this is going to happen before it happens. And so Jesus responds to their question. Now, it's really important that when we look at this chapter, and the reason I read it all in, 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 at one go uh, Jesus goes beyond answering the question that Mark gives us. In verses 5 through 23, Jesus answers their question about how Jerusalem will be destroyed in 70 AD. But in verses 24 through 27, Jesus answers a question they didn't even ask. Mark doesn't record them asking, their main concern was about the temple. This threw them off their guard, right? But Jesus doesn't just want to tell them about the temple, but starting in verse 24, he, he tells them about his second coming. Now, before we jump into the, into the text, just a few thoughts to help us line up properly. If you play golf, and I don't play golf, I went to a driving range once, and my career began and ended in, in one day. But I know this about, I know this about golf, I know this about golf. If you don't line up proper, properly, if you don't align yourself properly to the T, nothing else matters. Doesn't matter what kind of shoes you have, cleats, is that what they call them? Doesn't matter how much you spent on your clubs. It doesn't matter how many people at the country club know who you are. It doesn't matter how, if you own your own golf cart or if you had to, to rent one. If you're not aligned properly, the ball's not going to go toward the hole. And before we jump into a text like Mark 13, I want us to align ourselves properly to it. And I just want to give you a few thoughts. Number one, when, when Jesus talks about the last days, the apostles later let us in on this, that Jesus is talking about the period between his first coming and his second coming. Now, there are a last days of the last days. But, but most of the time when the apostles are talking about, and use this phrase, we see this in Peter and James and in Acts chapter 2, they're talking about all of the time, however long that is, between when Jesus came the first time and when Jesus came the second time. So if somebody asks you, hey, do you think we're living in the last days? You know, just tell them, yeah, yeah, and they'll, that'll get them off your back. But we really are, according to Scripture. Now, number two, I, I, I want you to know this. What we're going to do today, because we all have to eat lunch, we're going to look at what Jesus wants to know about the last days, about the future from Mark 13. We are not going to try to take what all of the Bible says about the last days and cram it into one sermon. If we did that, we would have to ignore most of what Jesus says here, and we would have to ignore Mark's intentions 
for his readers. You see, Scripture is not meant to be dissected like a frog in your high school science class. Scripture is meant to be read and understood, and and when it's read and understood, it'll transform our lives. So we're not going to take every single text and attempt to answer all of our end-time questions. That's not what this sermon is about, because I, I don't find a single text in the Bible that even addresses that. Number three, we also need to be honest about the difficulty of a passage like this. I have my understanding of Mark 13 and of the end times in general, and there are very good Christians that are 11 and a half times smarter than me that see it differently, and that's okay. As we said in this, as Pastor Tyler said in the session before, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things, and that applies to Mark 13 as much as it applies to anything else. So because of that, I will do my best to emphasize what is clear and what is plain, And no doubt we'll have some questions that we came in this morning with that we're going to leave with as well. And some of those questions won't be answered until we get to heaven. So what Jesus shares with his disciples then and what Mark is sharing with his readers really comes under two headings, all right? Two points. If you were hoping for three points in a poem, go find a poem on your own after church and you'll just have to miss the the third point. But here's our two points. What Jesus wants his disciples to know and how Jesus wants his disciples to live. Now, most of the time when we talk about end times, everyone is interested in the first point, what Jesus wants his disciples to know. But if you read the chapter and pay attention, you've already seen that Jesus is much more interested in how he wants his disciples to live. So that's where the weight of the sermon is going to be. What Jesus wants his disciples to know and how Jesus wants his disciples to to live. So, number one, what does Jesus want his disciples to know about the future? What does Jesus want us to know about the future? Well, first of all, he wants them to know that difficulty is coming. Difficulty is coming. Just how much difficulty, how bad are things going to get? After Jesus raises from the dead and then after he leaves and ascends to the Father, how bad is this going to be? Well, we read his descriptions, verses 5 and 6 and verses 21 and 22. There's going to be false teachers. Hey, you already know if you've read the epistles how one of the main problems they're dealing with is false teachers and false notions about who Jesus is. It was a problem from the very beginning, and that's what the disciples are going to face. After Jesus leaves, not everyone will automatically understand their message. And one of the reasons is, is because Satan is going to send false teaching and false messiahs to confuse people. The disciples had to be prepared for this. It's going to make things difficult. Verses 7 and 8 say that unrest and war will continue. For people living in the first century, and in fact for people living in any century after the fall, wars and rumors of wars is not a unique thing. There's always been wars and, and rumors of wars. Now the reason Jesus tells them there's going to be wars and rumors of wars is not to say this is going to be the first time this has ever happened, but it's to, it, it's to get this message across to the disciples, just because Jesus has come doesn't mean everything in the world's going to be okay. Because some of them thought that. No, there still are going to be wars and there still are going to be rumors of wars. Even there's going to be a Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire. Yes, even though Jesus has come, things are going to be bad. Then in verses 9 to 11, there's going to be persecution. As the gospel message goes out, From Jerusalem to all the nations, not just 
the Samaritans and not just the Gentiles around Jerusalem, but literally to all the nations, and we see this if we follow the book of Acts, not everyone's going to believe it. And furthermore, not everyone's going to be happy about it. Some will believe it. But as we know from the history of the early churches, many rejected it. And not in a passive sense, but they rejected it and killed and persecuted Christians. This was something else that the apostles weren't quite ready for. But Jesus wants to let them know persecution is going to happen. As the gospel goes out, the leaders of the world will not just immediately accept it, but they'll see it as a threat to their power. Verses 12 through 13, it won't just be persecution from governments and from Rome, but it'll even be betrayal from people that were once close to you. Betrayal from others, even hatred to the point of execution. Martyrs in the early church didn't die as heroes. They didn't get obituaries in the Jerusalem times. Martyrs died as villains, hated even by their close families for the gospel. Then verses 14 through 20, destruction. This gets to what the, dis- the disciples, uh, the four disciples were asking Jesus about in the first place. Jesus tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem, which was the very birthplace of all of these promises that Jesus fulfilled. Jerusalem, where the first church was started. Jerusalem, where the gospel came from, is going to be destroyed and in ruins. And Christians will literally need to head for the hills when this happens. Now, it's one thing for us to look back on these events because we have, uh, it's a little bit easy. We're sitting in our recliner in the 21st century. We know what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD, but for the apostles, this goes against their expectations of what Jesus would do. Now, th- this, is, this has a little bit of similarity to our text in, back in chapter 11 when we talked about um, you know, Palm Sunday, Jesus coming in Jerusalem. Everyone's really excited. Well, the, you know, the, the disciples were really excited too. And they weren't excited because they thought in the next 30 or 40 years their homeland was going to be destroyed. That's not what they saw coming. They, they weren't prepared for this spiritual kingdom that Jesus was going to bring. So as Jesus is saying these things, they weren't sitting there yawning, as, as we might understandably yawn on a Sunday morning while this text is being read. Their jaws are dropping. This is not what they wanted. This is not what they hoped for. Jesus, even after he, he, he rises from the dead, he won't be accepted by everyone. Even when he sends the Holy Spirit to empower the sharing of the gospel, he won't be received by everyone. And that means difficulty for his followers. And the difficulty is going to come quick. That's the point of the parable in verses 28 to 31, okay? Now, there's two parables in this, in this passage the, the first parable has to do with the these things, okay? Five to t- verses 5 to 23. You may want to mark that in your Bible if it's helpful. The first parable is the these things, verses 5 through 23. These things are going to happen quick. Pay attention. The second parable is after those things, Jesus returning. The point of the first parable is it's happening soon, guys. The point of the second parable is when it comes to Jesus' return, we have no idea when this is going to happen. So the parables sound very different, and that's the point. They're referring to the two different things in the text. 
So when you see the fig tree and the leaves are coming out, what do you know? Well, you know that the fruit can't be that far behind, right? And Jesus is telling them that the the suffering that he's going to go through and and then the turbulence that they're going to face after Jesus goes through his suffering is a signal that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. His followers will not be loved and not be accepted, not be received by the world, but instead will be rejected. So Jesus wants them to know two things. Number one, difficulty is coming. Number two, and this is the good part, Jesus is coming again. We sang about it this morning. Now, if you noticed, Jesus answers a question here, beginning in verse 24, that the disciples didn't ask. Mark does not record them asking, hey, Jesus, when are you coming back? They want to know about the chaos. They want to know about the temple. They want to know about the destruction in Jerusalem. But Jesus tells them anyway in verses 24 through 27 that he's coming again. Sometime after this, in those days, after this, there's the these things and the those days. We live in between the these things and before those days. I hope that's somewhat clear. So in verses 24 through 26, then Jesus references what the prophet Isaiah said about the the coming of the Lord. There's, There's gonna be problems and chaos and tribulations in 70 AD as the disciples are persecuted. But one day there will be a final tribulation, a final darkness, a final chaos. We don't know when. One day there will be a final judgment. The judgment of Jerusalem is not the last time God's going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world again in the future. Notice how he describes his coming in verse 26. He will gather his people, his people, but he will be seen by all people. The first time he came, he came to Bethlehem. He came in obscurity. He came in silence. But the second time he comes, when he finally comes for the last time, it won't be in obscurity. It won't be in silence. The first time he came, he came to be judged. The second time he comes, he will eventually come as judge. So the disciples may be wondering, okay, Jesus, that's great that you're going to come back, but when are you going to come back? Is this going to be soon? Like, like, like the fig tree, is this going to happen really quickly, Jesus? Well, verses, 20, verses 32 and 33. We don't know. Did you get that? We don't know. Now, about the stuff that would happen in Jerusalem, Jesus says that these things are going to happen within a generation. And they did. It's pretty obvious. But to those things, Jesus returning, Jesus even says that he doesn't know. So when he says this is going to happen in a generation, he's not referring to his coming because he said he doesn't even know when his coming is. So he wouldn't know that it was within a generation because it wasn't. When is Jesus coming back? We don't know. And this may bother some of us. It may really bother some of us, especially if you you come to the Bible and you have a love for certainty. Now, the Bible does provide certainty with the questions that it raises. But the Bible makes no promise or no intention of giving you certainty for all the questions you raise. Now, we love to say, and I'm a preacher, so I say things like this probably, the Bible has all the answers. 
Well, that's not true. The Bible has the most important answers. The Bible has the answers God wants us to know. But if your question, as C.S. Lewis would say, is something like, what color is the triangle? The Bible doesn't have an answer for that because that's nonsense. And it turns out that a lot of our questions about the Bible may be nonsense. But the Bible does something more than giving us all our answers. Because I don't even know if we would want a book like that based on some of the questions we come up with. The Bible tells us what God wants us to know. Hold on, not necessarily what we want to know. Now, isn't that much more comforting? If you know God, and you know God and his character as described in the Bible, wouldn't you rather have what he thinks you should know than what you think you should know? I said all that to say this. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Now, a lot of people say they know. And a lot of people have a, a really cool timeline. And I'm probably going to get one emailed to me this afternoon. And I will, as I'm eating my lunch, I'll look over and say, wow, that's really interesting. I've never seen that before. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. The angels don't know. When Jesus was on earth with his disciples, he didn't know. I'm fairly confident that there are some people that think they know, but they don't know. You may be here and you think you know, and you know all this stuff that's going to happen and the order it's going to happen in. That's wonderful, but you don't know. <laughs> Jesus didn't know. Are we all good? Okay. You don't know. Augustine has a commentary on Mark, and he has a lot of comments about different verses. Here's the only thing he says about verse 32 and 33. Okay? A person does not go wrong when he knows that he does not know something, but only when he thinks he knows something which he does not know. <laughs> now, some people are going to read Augustine's commentary, and they've been reading it the last 1,600 years, and they say, okay, Augustine, but when is Jesus coming back? <laughs> I'm sorry, but you missed the boat. That's not how it works. Now, I realize that when I say things like this, some of you may be kind of disappointed because you want a timeline, you want a chart, you want a date. But listen, Jesus is more interested with how his disciples live in the here and now than that his disciples have all the answers to all their questions about the then and there. So let's hang on to Mark 13 and see what Jesus has for us. Difficulty, here's what he wants them to know. Difficulty is coming, but Jesus is coming back. Difficulty is coming, but Jesus is coming back. But here's Jesus' primary concern. How does he want us to live? How does he want us to live? Now, there are 19 imperative statements in Mark 13. I'm not going to give you 19, 19 points because I think they all kind of fall under three headings. But Jesus gives them a lot of moral commands. You know what's interesting? A lot of times when people are interested in these end times questions, they're not interested in moral demands. They don't really want to know at the end of the day how Jesus is telling them to live. Perhaps they're missing the point. But our Lord is interested in how we live. And though he doesn't give us all of the what of the future, he gives us the how. How to live in the last days. How to live in between his first and his second coming. Now it's interesting, I don't have it on the screen, but if you go to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, um, there's a statement that we use a lot where, where Paul tells Titus we should look forward to our blessed hope, Jesus' return. 
But in the context of looking forward to the, blessing, to the blessed hope, he says that the gospel changes us and helps us deny, godly, deny ungodliness and become pure. These two things go together. Are you with me? Thinking about Jesus' return should go together with denying ungodliness and growing in our purity. And to the degree that we are more interested with how Jesus wants us to live than him answering our questions, I think we will grow in that. So there's, there's three things here. If we look at what Jesus wants us to do, there, there's three headings, uh, and I'll give, you, give them to you in three words, okay? Before Jesus comes back, whenever Jesus comes back, he wants us to do these three things. Share, endure, and watch. Okay? Share, endure, and watch. Number one, Jesus' disciples live in the last days by sharing the message about Jesus. By sharing the message about Jesus. If you, I hope you saw verses 9 through 11. If not, just glance over it in your, in your Bible if you have it. Jesus is telling them that they will testify. That they'll testify like in courts, in legal settings. They're going to be put to trial. They're going to be viewed as criminals and in that context, they're going to have to talk about Jesus. Now, this is a little bit different than what they've been doing. What have they been doing? They've been organizing healing lines, right? You have leprosy, okay, stand over here. Jesus will see you in a few minutes. In some cases, they've been doing the wrong thing, like sending the children away. They've been following Jesus around. Sometimes sent out with very specific instructions and given power to do specific things. But when they came up to, like, to a house that didn't want them, they would leave. Shake the dust off your feet and leave. Find people that want to talk to you. That's what the disciples have been doing so far. Oh, we, we had a, another big meal, 5,000 people. Let's go gather up the leftovers from a miracle. I mean, this is kind of a cush job. Now Jesus is saying after he leaves that one of the most important ways they're going to witness for him is by being treated like criminals. They're going to be in court. They're not going to be at miracles anymore. They're not going to be at resurrections anymore. They're going to go to court, and they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to be taken to prison. But despite all of that, Jesus says, you need to testify for my sake, and I will send the Holy Spirit to help you know what to say. This probably scared them. This is why they needed encouragement. This is not what they were expecting. In other words, difficulty, the difficulty that's coming shouldn't stop the spread of the gospel, and it won't stop the spread of the gospel. Now, isn't this the whole point of the book of Revelation? People find a lot of stuff in Revelation. Here's the secret. People find whatever they want to find in Revelation. But Revelation ends this way. The Spirit and the bride say, Come! And let him that heareth say, come, and him that is a thirst, come, drink the water of life freely. The book of Revelation is an invitation. And when the early churches got the book of Revelation, you know what they did? They went to their deaths sharing the gospel. That's what it led them to do. And so when we think of Jesus coming back, we should be that much more motivated to share the message. When we read Mark 13 and think about the promise that one day the Son is coming back, that one day He is going to return for us, that should cause us to share the message, to share the gospel. Jesus is not telling us these things to discourage us. Jesus is telling us this to encourage us, 
encourage us in our evangelism. So Christian, don't waste the difficulty and the chaos of this world. Yes, people are unsettled. Yes, it's trying times. Yeah, and it will be until Jesus comes back and gets us. But don't, don't lose your voice. No, no, God can use all of the difficulty of this world to amplify your voice. Share the gospel, pay attention to lost people. Don't forget that everyone you meet, people you bump into, people that you, that you meet, or people that you get annoyed by even, are people that are going to spend eternity somewhere. Hey, there's a lot that we do in church um, as Christians that we can do in heaven. We worship, we'll do that in heaven. We fellowship, we'll get to do that in heaven. But we share the gospel with people and evangelize the lost, we can't do that in heaven. When Jesus comes back, it'll be too late for that. So do it now. Our time is short. Jesus is coming. We don't know when, but we know he's coming. So share the message. Tell people that you meet that God loves them. Steer conversations toward the good news of Jesus. Invite people to church. Be gospel conscious as you talk to other people. We live in the last days by sharing the message about Jesus. Number two, we live in the last days by enduring opposition for Jesus. Opposition. It's, it's possible that, that like the disciples, we assume or have assumed that following Jesus meant that we somehow deserved a comfortable life. But if the disciples had thought that up to this point, then their expectations were shattered. He's made it very clear. We don't have a right to a comfortable life. Now, we get eternal life. And the good news is, in even Mark's original readers who went through suffering that you and I will never understand, they understood that because the second coming is real, whatever opposition we face is worth it. Whatever difficulty we endure is worth it. Whatever we have to go through this very short Temporary, temporary life is worth it because our Savior is coming again. It's true. We have literal persecution for many of our brothers and sisters across the world. We have opposition of different kinds here. We have lost relationships. We have misunderstanding. Maybe hatred, maybe betrayal. And we even have difficulty that doesn't even arise out of our testimony for Jesus, but whatever the case, because Jesus is returning, he's gonna give us the strength to endure. And then number three, number three, disciples live in the last days by watching for the return of Jesus. Jesus tells us to watch. Now, as I said, the parable of the fig tree goes back to verses five to 23. The point of the parable of the fig tree is in relation to this difficulty and this suffering starting, it's gonna happen very soon, pay attention, the leaves are already out, okay? The second parable has the, the opposite effect. The second parable refers to verses 24 through 27. It refers to Jesus coming back. This is the parable of the doorkeeper, okay? And the point of this parable is not, it's just about to happen, get ready, lock down. The point of this parable is, you don't know when it's gonna happen. So Jesus gives us this image of an estate owner who, who leaves his property and he has someone staying back and, and watching the door. And if you're that servant, if you're the doorkeeper, if you're, if you're the porter, you have this, this wealthy, uh, powerful master that you work for, that you respect, and he's left, and he didn't tell you when he's coming back, 
what are you going to do if you're a good servant? Well, you're not going to fall asleep. You're, you're not going to act as if he's never coming back. You're not going to go about your duties as the doorkeeper in such a way thinking that he may never return. No, you are going to do your service as if he could return at any time because he could return at any time. That's the point. That's the point. And who are the servants in the parable? Who is the doorkeeper? All of us that belong to Jesus. Because if you belong to Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, you're called to serve Jesus. You're called to live for Jesus until he comes back. And then we get to live with him forever. So we watch. We watch. What does it mean, practically speaking, to watch? I mean, it doesn't, we know it doesn't mean like look up in the sky. I mean, if you're driving down the road and you think, well, I got to watch and pray. Just heard this sermon about watching. I'm going to look up at the sky, see if Jesus is coming back. Don't do that. That's dumb. You know, that's not what it means, right? But what does it mean to watch? Well, notice two things about watching. First, it goes hand in hand with prayer. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Not only does it go hand in hand with prayer, but secondly, the par- in the parable, it's contrasted with sleeping, from being lazy, from not being attentive to your job. To watch for the Lord's return. To be a watching Christian means this, friends. It means we work and pray as if he could come back at any moment because he could. It means this. It means that we go about our Christian service Independence on God, that's prayer, and with constant vigilance, that's watching. We're, we're acting out our spiritual gifts as if Jesus could come back and ask account of how we served him tonight. That's watching. That's watching. Watching means we live out our Christian lives in such a way that we treat the second coming as if it's going to happen because it is going to happen. And we do this in prayer, not in our own strength, not by pulling up ourselves by our own bootstraps and saying, I'm going to work hard because Jesus may come back and I have to answer to him. No, we do this in prayer, in dependence on God until he returns. We work with vigilance and prayer because the master may come back at any time. How do we know he could come back at any time? Because he didn't tell us when he's coming back. Is it possible that the drive for having a certainty about everything that happens in the the future, no matter how much people have to manipulate verses and texts in the Bible, is it possible that the drive for that certainty is just to feel comfortable thinking we can put off the Lord's return for as long as possible? Well, I know you you say that Jesus could come back at any time, but I don't think he could. Here's all these reasons why. Why don't you want to think he could come back at any time? What's underneath that? Think about it. So dad, lead your family as if you may have to answer to God for how you've led your family tonight. Well, I have all these plans. We're going to do this and we're going to do this and I want my family to have this. What if it all ends this evening? How would that change how you lead your family? Are you evangelizing your kids like Jesus could come back tomorrow? Are you loving your wife like Jesus could come back tomorrow? Don't fall asleep at the doorpost. He's coming back. He is our master. We are not the master. We are his servants. He told us to watch and to work until he returns and to be ready. 
are you ready? Church member, your ministry, the ways that you're involved in the ministry of the church is not for others to see. It's not for others to appreciate you or to validate you. It's not so the staff knows you're doing something. It's not even for necessarily just for the good of the church. Ultimately, it's for Jesus. Jesus is coming back. So work with vigilance and prayer. Watch. Teenager, everyone in the world is going to tell you this over and over and over again. You have the rest of your life. Maybe. But if I'm a Christian, maybe not. Because being a Christian means I believe Jesus is literally coming back. This isn't complicated. So, teenager, you may not have the rest of your life. Man, study the Bible. Get some godly friends. Learn how to share the gospel with other people. Learn how to answer tough questions about your faith. Don't put that off until you're 25 or 30. You may not have the rest of your life. Sit up at the doorpost. The master is coming back. Watch and pray. So says N.T. Wright about our passage. Jesus' command then is not to sit down and work out a prophetic timetable. Always a more exciting thing to do. But keep awake and watch. Keep awake and watch. It may not be what we want out of Mark 13, but it's what Jesus wants to tell us. Keep awake and watch. So we stay awake. We lift up our shoulders. We stay our post. Why? Because we have a master who is good. (laughs) A master who we're going to give account to for how we lived. A master, not only that, that we love, that's adopted us into his family. And he didn't tell us when he's coming back, but he's put me at this door. So I'm going to stay awake. I'm going to keep my shoulders back. I'm going to watch for him. I'm going to serve him with vigilance until he returns. Here's the teaching of Mark 13. We live in the last days by staying faithful to Jesus, remembering that he is coming again. Are you prepared? Do you know Jesus in the first place? I'm glad you know things about Jesus. I'm glad you have attended a church this morning that talks about Jesus. But do you know Jesus? He came and died for your sin and defeated death by rising from the grave so that you could have a relationship with God. But has there ever been a time in your life where you have claimed that promise? Are you ready? And Christian, Christian, take heed to what Jesus has told us. Remember the difficulty is coming, but in the end, Jesus is coming back. And then remember how Jesus has told us to live. Share the good news. Endure suffering. Watch for his return. These are, this, this is what Jesus expects of us. And based on Jesus' expectations, I just want to ask you this morning, are you living your life ready? Have you fallen asleep at the door? Or are you waiting and watching for his return?